Hi, dreamers, and welcome to the special vacation series bonus of California Dreaming. For this, we are traveling to visit our neighbors to the north, Canada. This is where one of your Facebook group admins, Jen T, resides, specifically in the province of Ontario. And this episode is for her. And she's had a rough couple of days this last week or so. So I just want to let her know that I love her and I care about her, our, all of our admins and our group do. And I want to thank her for her contribution and support of the group and the show. Now, this isn't going to be the episode that we had voted on a few weeks back, which was the Shedden Massacre. The case, as it turns out, is very long and complicated. And over the past couple of months that I've been trying to tackle that story, I simply haven't been able to dedicate the time it's going to take to get it put together for you in a meaningful way. Not only that, a few listeners have indicated that massacres aren't a favorite topic of discussion, though I don't intend to shy away from those types of cases. It just didn't seem like that particular story was going to come together well for me, at least not right now. So for now, I found a case that not only ties into our vacation destination of Ontario, Canada, but part of the story also takes place in California and Arizona as well. And it's a pretty good follow-up to episode 92, The Tale of Nixon's Dirty Millions. So without further ado, California Dreaming proudly presents this latest installment of our show's vacation series. Straight out of Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, the tale of the stopwatch gang. Stephen Reed is one of the most infamous bank robbers Canada had ever known. If you listen to episode 92, then you recall we discussed the fall of the bank robbery. It just isn't as easy as it used to be. Did bank robberies have a heyday? Probably. It might have been more like a hay century. The first bank opened in the United States in 1791, but the first bank robbery on record didn't occur until well into the 1800s. From then on, bank robberies were a thing people could get away with and could get away with a lot. This carried on until the 1970s, the 80s, even into the 90s. But now, as we said in episode 92 technology is standing in the way of bank robberies being an easy take anymore. And Stephen Reed was a prolific bank robber. Him, along with his partners in crime, Patty Mitchell and Lionel Wright. Together, they would rob several dozen banks and make away with millions of dollars. If they were caught, they'd managed to pull off prison breaks. They made headlines across Canada as well as the United States and law enforcement on both sides of the border were after these guys for years. The FBI would give this trio of bandits a nickname, the Stopwatch Gang. Stephen was sometimes known to wear a really large stopwatch around his neck in order to keep time during their robberies. Honestly, when I read this detail, I pictured a stopwatch the size of those clocks Flava Flav used to wear back in the 90s. I don't know if he still does. I just imagine these guys going into banks with huge clocks around their necks. But I'm fairly certain their stopwatches weren't that obnoxious. And these guys, they were efficient and well organized. And they usually donned Halloween masks during the course of their robberies in order to obscure their identities. Even the FBI would have to concede that these guys were good. You'd have to have a measure of respect for that. Even though they were doing something illegal, they still had respect for the guys. According to Stephen, what made them a success was the fact that they did their homework. If someone decided to rob a bank out of sheer desperation, there is little chance very much planning went into that heist. Those guys are the guys that fail. The ones who take their time, they study their targets. They know how the system works and the bank robbery will almost always be a success. 
Stephen was one of 10 children raised in Massey, Ontario, a very small town with a population of about 1,200 at that time, though as of the last census has grown to a little more than 3,200 people. He described his dad as hardworking and hard drinking, but he did what he could to take care of the large family. They always seemed to be just barely scraping by growing up, but growing up, the kids made the best of what they did have and they enjoyed it. Hunting, spending summers at the rivers, endless forests to play in. He had not a bad word to say about his family. He was raised well, taken care of well, he earned good marks in school, and he had once had aspirations of becoming a hockey player. But by the time Stephen hit his teen years, things took a turn for the worse for him. He got caught up in drug use, and he started running away from home. The first time, he went more than 2,000 miles, or 3,218 kilometers west, all the way over to Vancouver. And that's some serious running away from home. Vancouver has a rough, dark side to it where people are often without places to stay, without money in their pockets, and looking for ways to get high. If Stephen ever came into any money, all of it would be spent on a heroin addiction that had a firm grip on his young life. This stint on the streets, it didn't last all that long. He would end up going back home to Massey, and he got himself back into high school. But a couple of years later, by the time Stephen was 15, he ran off again. But this time, he would find himself arrested and locked up in jail. This was his first time. He was busted selling a bag of hashish to an undercover. He would go on to be arrested for a second time the following year on another drug charge. The teen found himself banished to solitary confinement on the day before Christmas that year at Burnaby's Ocala Prison. Heartbroken and desperate, he began crying and pleading to God that if he got him out of this, he swore he would never do drugs or break the law ever again. But God never answered. Running away and homeless again by the time he was 17, Stephen found himself on the streets of London, Ontario and there he would be introduced to methamphetamines. Before long, he had developed a $500 a day habit. At least, that would have been the extent of his habit if he had $500 a day to spend. His answer to feeding and maintaining his addiction was bank robbery. At 17 years of age, he purchased a gun and committed his very first bank robbery. This was the desperation heist that he had described, and he managed to pull it off without a hitch. So from the age of 17 to 20, Stephen would continue to rob banks in order to support his meth addiction. But along with his successful bank robberies, he became somewhat of a braggart. He blabbed a lot about his exploits, and he always had tons of cash on him. And at some point, he told the wrong person. And that person would end up snitching on him. Stephen was arrested yet again. And this would land him his lengthiest sentence thus far. A decade. Ten years in Kingston Penitentiary, which was going to be a lot worse than the last place he was incarcerated at, Ocala Prison. The sounds that echoed through the cement halls of that prison would haunt Stephen for the rest of his life. But these walls would not hold him the way that they were meant to. At the age of 23, he had been in Kingston for two years by then when he managed to pull off an escape. He was on one of Canada's famous day passes that they like to hand out to prisoners, which I'm not necessarily opposed to. It's just the first time I had heard of a Canadian day pass privilege for prisoners happened to be the case out of Winnipeg. The man who murdered, beheaded, and cannibalized bus passenger Tim McLean back on July 30th, 2008. His killer, Vincent Lee, after a minimal amount of time in prison, was given some day passes. And I was like, what? 
Didn't this guy randomly kill and eat somebody on a Greyhound bus? How is he getting day passes to go hang out in the city? Well, it's because that's how they do things in Canada, apparently. So Stephen is on his day pass from prison. He's with the counselor. And they're having this nice casual lunch date when he excused himself to go to the bathroom and he went out the window. He went to Ottawa and he stayed there in a basement apartment with a friend of his. It was at this point that he was introduced to Patty Mitchell. He was known around town as the unofficial mayor of the Ottawa underworld. And Stephen, for the rest of his life, would consider Patty his best friend. Patty was in charge of quite the lucrative robbery conglomerate, but his front was an aluminum siding business. Stephen and Patty became fast friends. Stephen was so impressed with the criminal enterprise Patty had going on. Patty Mitchell also came from a large family, one of eight children raised in a hard-working Catholic family on the tough side of Little Italy in Ottawa. Patty's family lived on a street where the further you made your way down the block, the worse it got. And they lived on the very end of that. As a kid, Patty began getting caught up in some street crimes, and he also became known as quite a scrapper. By the time he was 14, he found himself in jail on a conviction for assault, having taken part in a street fight that led to the death of another teen. He was in juvie until he was 18, and then he was released. But the four years he was down didn't do anything to sway him away from a fledgling life of crime. As soon as he was sprung from juvie, he just started back up where he had left off. But now he was older, bigger, and a little bit wiser. At this point, he also joined forces with one of his older brothers, Bobby, and together they would become partners in crime. A couple of thieves. In 1961, Patty met a woman who he would end up marrying before he would even turn 20 years old. Within a year, they became parents to a son, Kevin. For the next decade, he would work as a delivery driver for a soft drink company, and it would be at this job that he became acquainted with Lionel Wright. Looking back on it, Patty would say meeting Lionel would shift the direction of his life in a way that he should have never gone. Lionel was kind of an awkward guy, introverted and shy. He really didn't have much going on in life. He lived with his mom. He didn't party. He didn't drink. Most nights he just stayed home and either read a book or watched some TV. He did clerical work at the soft drink company, and every single day, he wore the exact same outfit. The one thing Lionel did indulge in were adult magazines, those he liked. Eventually, Patty and Lionel became friends, and they pretty much saw each other every day at work. That is until Patty was let go from his delivery job from the soda company as a result of joining a driver's walkout. A couple of months after being let go, Patty was at home and still out of work when he randomly received a call from Lionel. He had remembered a conversation they'd once had where Patty mentioned that he liked Seagram's rye whiskey. Lionel had secured a new job working as a clerk at some trucking company. There were a couple of cases lying around in the warehouse. He could have them. Nobody would notice. Patty showed up to the warehouse to claim those boxes of whiskey he couldn't help but notice an adjacent yard with a bunch of trailers that didn't seem to be kept under any kind of security. In this yard, the trailers seemed endless and full of stuff, good stuff, stuff that was to be sold. Cigarettes, candy, clothes, just everything. Lionel told him, you know, just take what you want. He'd fudge the paperwork and someone else could take the blame for the missing stuff. And over the course of the next several years, this was the racket Patty and Lionel would run. Lionel would steal stuff from his work, cover up the inventory with his creative paperwork, 
and Patty would unload all the stuff on the black market. And what exactly was Patty telling his wife that he was up to? Well, if you guessed he told her the truth, you'd be wrong. He told her he was working at an aluminum siding business. Every day he got up, dressed up like he was into sales, right down to the suit and tie, and headed out, fencing all the stolen stuff that he and Lionel had procured. Eventually, Lionel's employer began catching on. I mean, way too much stuff was going missing and unaccounted for. Though they couldn't prove it, they believed Lionel had something to do with it, so they fired him. And there went Lionel and Patty's meal ticket. And it wasn't just like losing the wages of a regular 9-to-5 job. They were making money hand over fist with a minimal amount of effort. They had gotten used to a certain lifestyle, so they were going to have to figure out a new racket to get involved in. Patty called it a new enterprise. Shortly after Lionel lost the job, he and Patty began looking for their next easy gig. Patty would come to meet Stephen around this time, who, if you remember, was hiding in a friend's basement from authorities after skipping out while having lunch on his way-too-generously-granted Canadian day pass. Patty and Stephen quickly became friends. Stephen was a young, tough, well-built guy and had zero fear or hesitation about getting into anything illegal or otherwise. And with the introduction of Stephen, the trio formed their little gang of crooks. And for the ensuing year or so, Stephen, Patty, and Lionel picked up right where they had left off after Lionel lost his warehouse job. They targeted Ottawa's network of shipping and delivery services, coming away with anywhere from $20,000 to $30,000 a day. Even split three ways, that's still a lot of money. Each man had their own specific expensive habits. Patty enjoyed betting at the racetracks. Lionel enjoyed spending his money on sex workers. And Stephen continued to feed his drug habit. Nobody was safe from the potential of falling victim to their little theft ring. On April 14, 1974, 24-year-old David Braham was working as a guard at a warehouse located at the Ottawa International Airport. This warehouse was specifically set aside for particularly valuable cargo that came through the airport. On this night, David was tasked with guarding five boxes that were not only secured in the warehouse, but they were inside a locked cage inside the warehouse. And each box was carefully sealed with red wax to ensure they would not be tampered with. These boxes were making their way to the Royal Canadian Mint from the Red Lake Gold Mines, which is located towards the western side of Ottawa, while the Mint is clear across on the other side of the province, almost to the border of Quebec. Four out of the five boxes held solid gold bars, each about the size of a loaf of bread. The fifth box contained two small bars formed using the scrapings of the gold smelters. The total weight of the gold was almost 320 pounds or 145 kilos. Today, that would be worth about $6 million. So David was guarding this when he received a phone call. The person on the other end was really mad. He yelled, Has my man arrived there yet? An employee was sent over to the warehouse to grab the de-icing liquid. Flights were being delayed because of ice and they needed it immediately. David told him that nobody had shown up to the warehouse to pick anything up. And when the caller heard that, he began spewing a profanity-laden rant. This was causing huge problems with the flights. Heads were going to roll if he didn't get these planes de-iced. As David was getting an earful on the phone, someone began knocking at the door. David opened it. It was an Air Canada employee. At least that's what it said on his parka. He told David that the boss was looking for him and he was pissed. Well, the man in the Air Canada parka was actually Stephen Reed. And spoiler alert, he doesn't work for Air Canada. 
Stephen picked up the phone receiver and in his best, nervous voice, he apologized for the delay. He'd be right there. He put the phone down, turned around, and brandished a weapon, pointed it right at David. He told him that this was a robbery, follow his instructions exactly, or he was going to kill him. Stephen took David's handcuffs and cuffed him to the cage that held the five boxes. He took David's keys and demanded to know which key unlocked the cage. He didn't have the key. It's in the airport's main terminal. After a few choice curse words, Stephen put a cardboard box over David's head to keep him from getting a good look at him and what he was doing. Stephen found some tools, attacked the cage lock using a saw and a wrench, and the lock finally gave up and fell off the cage. He put the boxes onto a cargo cart and pushed it out to the loading dock. Lionel was parked there. They loaded the boxes up and they were gone. David wasn't discovered for another 30 minutes by the maintenance crew. As soon as the theft of the gold was reported, law enforcement scrambled to set up roadblocks going in and out of the airport. But the thieves had a pretty good head start and were way ahead of those roadblocks. News of the Ottawa airport gold heist made headlines across Canada by the next morning. It was reported that $165,000 in gold was stolen, but that was only the value that the cargo was insured for. In 1974, when this heist took place, the gold that they made away with was actually worth $750,000. It would turn out to be one of the largest gold heists in Canadian history. There are actually a couple of more gold heists that are called the largest in history, even one that was never solved. So which one is actually the true largest one is somewhat disputed. So how is it that these guys caught wind of this gold stash at the airport? Well, they received some inside information. Patty and Stephen frequented a pool hall just about every afternoon. It was there they would come to know a guy named Gary Kutanch. He worked for Air Canada, a baggage handler. They came to find that he spent part of the time handling baggage, part of the time stealing things from his work. And it was Patty who zeroed in on Gary. He's a petty thief, and he works around a lot of cargo. Eventually, Gary spilled the beans about gold shipments. Once a month, a shipment came through the airport on its way to the Canadian Royal Mint. Patty made Gary an offer. Tip him off to the next shipment of gold, and they will pay him $100,000, which he did. He was the one who tipped them off to the five boxes of gold stored in that security cage in that warehouse. But as much as Gary helped the thieves, he would also be their downfall. In the weeks that followed the gold heist, you know, law enforcement are keeping a close eye on the airport and everyone employed there as well because from the very beginning, they suspected it was an inside job. The thieves would have had to have had inside info to know where the gold was going to be kept and when it was going to be there. And as for Gary, well, his spending kind of sort of ramped up like a lot. He bought himself a Harley Davidson and a really big diamond pinky ring. So yeah, law enforcement focused in on him quickly. Gary was taken into custody and questioned hard about what he knew. He could either spill his guts or he would go down for the theft all by himself. They knew the thief wore an Air Canada jacket. And what do you know, Gary? You work for Air Canada. And all of a sudden, you're making these super conspicuous purchases. Yeah, they told him, talk or go down alone. So in exchange for full immunity, he rolled over on Stephen, Patty, and Lionel. Besides that, Patty, who had promised Gary $100,000, had only given him a fraction of the money. He made numerous promises to get the money to him once they fenced off all the gold, but Gary was bugging Patty incessantly, and this annoyed him. 
Finally, Patty gave him $10,000 out of his own pocket to placate him until he unloaded the gold. He also warned Gary to not do any kind of spending that would draw attention to himself. He obviously didn't listen. Patty had already been on the Ottawa police's radar. He had yet to have racked up any convictions for anything, but it was a known fact that he was frequently involved in criminal activity. But other than Gary's confession and implication of Patty and Lionel, investigators were going to need more proof than the word of an admitted crook. So they would have to sit and wait and watch. Finally, about a year later, Gary was contacted by Patty. Could he do him a favor? He's got this suitcase coming through. Could he help slide it past customs? Now, I'm surprised that Gary is still working for Air Canada. But then again, we are talking about Canada with all of their second chances and their leniency and day passes. So whatever. Well, Gary turned around and informed the Ottawa police and they in turn confiscated the luggage. And when they opened it, they discovered it was filled with bags of cocaine. Patty and Lionel were subsequently taken into custody on March 3rd, 1975 and charged with drug trafficking. They were both convicted and sentenced to 17 years in prison. Patty was slapped with an additional three years because he had in his possession six stolen gold bars. Investigators had been surveilling the men and Patty was recorded on a wiretap making arrangements to sell the gold. Stephen did not take part in the drug smuggling. He left Canada. Remember, he was still on the run having skipped out on that day pass. After the gold heist, he crossed over into the United States. With a girlfriend, he traveled to Miami, Florida and eventually ended up in Arizona. Before long, his money ran dry and he decided to return to Canada, landing in Kingston, Ontario. The addiction to drugs that had plagued him continued to do so, and soon he was back to using again, both meth and heroin. He also started bragging about being part of the great gold heist, and someone squealed on him. He was eventually convicted for his role in that, and that tacked on an additional 10 years to the sentence he still needed to serve from his previous conviction. All three men would end up at Ottawa's detention center while they waited to see which prison they would be sent to. And apparently, the security at this place was minimal at best. The building was surrounded by one chain-link fence, and all of that was surrounded by woods. So sometime in October of 1976, Lionel was in the prison yard when he noticed a man scurrying towards the prison fence. There was one guard standing nearby, and this man approached the guard, pointed a gun at him, and demanded that he drop his weapon, and then he threw a duffel bag over the fence. Suddenly, several inmates headed towards the bag which contained a pair of bolt cutters which they promptly used to create a hole in the chain-link fence. Now, the group of inmates that came down to the fence where the duffel bag was tossed, each of them were involved in this. Lionel was not a part of the deal. He just happened to be loitering in the vicinity and saw what was going on. He saw the chance to go, and he took it. As the group of inmates made their way through the hole that they had cut in the fence, Lionel followed suit. They went through some fields and into the woods, finally making their way to a nearby road where a car was waiting to pick them up. Lionel got in like he belonged there. Nobody in the group really noticed the stowaway until after the car had been driving for a little while. Once they noticed, they pulled over and kicked him out. They'd all be picked up the next day and taken back into custody, but Lionel remained a fugitive. I'm no expert when it comes to prison breaks, but it seems as though the worst thing to do would be to stick together and stay in town. Lionel had the right idea. Not only did he part ways with the larger group, albeit involuntarily, not only did he get out of Ottawa, not only did he get out of Ontario, he got out of Canada, 
and went as far down south the eastern seaboard one possibly can, ending up right smack in the middle of central Florida in a city called Dundee. He knew a guy, also from Ottawa, who managed a motel in the town and told him to hit him up when he got there. He could stay there. He could have a job. These bank robbers, man, they know how to find and keep legit friends who have their backs, right? Remember Harry Barber in our Nixon episode? He knew a guy too. The apartment landlord who gave him a place and a job. I guess the moral of the story is, if you ever plan on being a fugitive from justice, well then, keep some landlords and hoteliers in your contacts. Seriously, I need friends like that for real. As for Lionel, even Stephen would say the guy was like a ghost. That would eventually become his nickname. He could go and be anywhere and nobody would ever notice him. He just blended into the background. In the meantime, when it came to Stephen and Patty, Canada wasn't going to mess around with these guys anymore. They were headed to the most secure prison in the province, Millhaven Institution. It was considered secure, but what that meant is that it housed Canada's most violent inmates as well. And it definitely lived up to that reputation and continues to do so today. This is where one of Canada's most infamous serial killers and rapists, Paul Bernardo, is currently housed. I wonder if he's ever applied for a day pass. Anyhow, the first day Stephen and Patty arrived, an inmate was beaten to death by another inmate with a piece of metal pipe. So after that, the two new arrivals began making plans to escape. They started off by getting in tip-top shape. They ran. They did whatever exercises they could in the yard. Push-ups, pull-ups, anything they needed in order to be physically able to pull off an escape especially getting over fences. The prison, for its part, seemed to be well-prepared for escape attempts. There were signs posted around the workout yard that if they crossed over certain areas blocked off by fences, they are subject to being shot to death. And there were guard towers manned 24 hours a day with orders to shoot anyone who attempted an escape. Stephen and Patty took part in numerous unsuccessful attempts to escape, one of which ended up with an inmate being shot and killed as he ascended the fence. The most determined attempt at an escape involved a plan to dig an underground tunnel and slowly make their way to the other side of the fence. After breaking into a small shed that was located in the prison yard, they began slowly digging a tunnel using small gardening tools and their bare hands. Little by little, they dug soil out hid the dirt in little bags, tucked those into their jackets in order to scatter it about the yard. The undertaking took months, and just when they were about 36 yards or 33 meters away from the fence, Ontario was hit by a record-breaking heat wave. Then, one day, a section of the tennis courts yeah, I guess they get tennis lessons in Canadian maximum security prisons. The black top of the tennis courts began to slowly cave in, and soon the months and months of painstaking work was exposed for all to see. I imagine it looking like a fault line suddenly appearing. This long, straight, human-sized gopher tunnel completely buckled in. It was then Stephen lost hope that he was going to be able to escape from Millhaven. Every attempt had failed. So he went on to plan B. Time to turn up the charm. If the two of them began acting like model prisoners, maybe they can earn a transfer to a more relaxed facility where their chances of escaping would be better. So how was he going to go about making nice with the prison staff? he settled on taking up styling hair. He needed to express an interest in gaining marketable skills once he would be released from prison. And if he did that, over time, once he proved his genuine interest in the field, 
he could be sent to a less secure place for more job training. And his plan worked. In late 1978, Stephen was relocated to a medium security prison in Kingston called Joyceville, and there he would receive more training in styling hair. Six months later, Patty arrived as well, along with a glowing letter of recommendation from the warden at Millhaven when he got there. Stephen had already schmoozed his way into the good graces of the warden at Joyceville. He was one of his favorite inmates, as well as the star player on the prison hockey team. I didn't know that was a thing either. I mean, prison never sounds like a good time, but tennis and hockey... Oh, Canada, it doesn't sound all that bad, especially if you know how to work the system, like our guys here, Stephen and Patty. And by the time Patty got there, Stephen already had an escape plan ready. He'd have to leave Patty behind, but he told him. He promised him he would come back for him. A few months after Patty's arrival, Stephen's opportunity finally came. On August 15, 1979, He was approved for a, wait for it, a day pass. Yay, Canada's famous day passes strikes again. The warden approved for him to go on a day trip to downtown Kingston at a salon while accompanied by one guard. They spent the good part of the morning at the salon, doing hair, learning some tips, having just a nice old time. Stephen getting all of this training for his post-prison life, right? And for their day past lunch date, the two decided on some Chinese cuisine. Isn't that special? And just like he did before on his last freaking day pass, nature called and Stephen once again excused himself to the restroom. And once again, he climbed out the restaurant's windows. He ran to a pre-arranged meeting place where his getaway driver was scheduled to meet him at a Holiday Inn about five blocks away. Once again, Canada and their frickin' day passes fail again. As Stephen composed himself before going inside, he looked up at a banner that was hanging outside the entrance of the hotel that said, quote, Welcome Ontario Detectives. Of all the darndest places, the local police were having their annual convention right there at this Holiday Inn. Doing the best he could to not look like he just sprinted five blocks away from his day pass guard, he pulled himself together and just made his way through the crowd of cops. Any one of them could have been assigned to one of his cases. They could have recognized his face, but no. He was able to make his way casually through all of these officers over to where his driver was seated, casually having a cup of coffee at a nearby table. They sat and quietly talked for a few minutes before they both got up nonchalantly and exited the hotel lobby out to their car. Stephen had made it. He headed back to Ottawa. He got his hands on a cheap gun. And this is when he began robbing banks. It was the quickest way he could think of to get the money together so he could finance a plan to help Patty make his escape. He intended to keep his promise to his friend. But stuck at Joyceville still, Patty was thinking Stephen wasn't going to come back for him. It would be risky. Stephen could be arrested again. Maybe he was afraid to come back for him. Maybe he had fallen back into his old drug habits. But that wasn't the case. Stephen wasn't going to let him down. On November 15, 1979, just three months after he had escaped from his day pass guard, Patty's brother, Bobby, paid him a visit at the prison. During their chat, he leaned in and quietly whispered, Today's the day. Stephen and Patty had already talked about how they would pull this off when the time came. You see, prior to Stephen's escape, the two had seen something interesting. They watched an ill inmate being taken out of the prison to a nearby hospital. And when this happened, the inmate had only been accompanied by one guard. This is where they'd be able to plan a break. So 
they made their plan. Once Stephen was on the outside, Patty needed to come up with a way to make himself so sick that he needed to be transported to the hospital via ambulance. They talked about a couple of ways Patty could possibly make himself sick enough to be sent to the hospital, but it had to be just the right amount of sick or injured. It had to be serious enough that the prison couldn't take care of him, but not too serious where Stephen couldn't take care of him. It couldn't be a broken bone or a woodshop accident. Eventually, they had gotten this idea that involved tobacco. They had heard a story once about an inmate that caused himself a nicotine overdose, though it isn't clear if it was accidental or on purpose, but the prison staff thought it appeared as though he was having a heart attack. They could get their hands on cigarettes, that wouldn't be a problem, and a nicotine overdose was something Patty could recover from on his own. So that was the plan. Stephen made sure Patty wanted to go through with it. He had a lot more to lose than Stephen did. Patty had a family, his wife, and his kids. He'd have to be on the run. That meant he couldn't see them. He was down to break Patty out, but after that, they would be on the run forever. Patty accepted the prospect of that. Being on the run was better than being locked up in prison. Once Stephen sent the message through Patty's brother, they would do it that same night. Leading up to the evening of the planned overdose and trip to the hospital, Patty started playing up the role of heart attack victim. He began saying he was experiencing chest pains. He was sent to the prison nurse on a number of occasions. So when the day came, he continued on with it. He went for a jog around the prison yard, but when he went to his cell to call it a night, he wasn't going to bed. He had been infusing a bottle of water with a rather large wad of tobacco, and he drank the whole thing. Now, it's not easy to overdose on nicotine, but if you ingest enough of it, it's poisonous, and too much of it can kill a person. Of course, Patty didn't know how much he needed to drink in order to make himself sick. But once he finished the bottle of tobacco water, which sounds really awful to drink, he almost immediately began feeling sick. And it wasn't just sick like sick to his stomach. He started to lose his mental clarity. Before he completely went into a full-blown overdose, he came out of a cell and headed down the hall to the common area where they ate their meals. He leaned over into a trash can thinking he would vomit and he just fell to the ground. He was writhing around. His heart was racing and he began sweating profusely. It did indeed look as though Patty was experiencing a heart attack. And even though he wasn't, Patty was sure that he was about to die. Before his mind completely went bonkers, he remembered thinking that he can't believe he just did this to himself. Patty was taken to see the nurse, and the nurse came to the conclusion that he needed to receive medical treatment at the hospital. Handcuffed to a gurney, leg irons on as well, Patty was wheeled out to an ambulance to be transported to the hospital. With him were two paramedics and two security guards, and they were not armed. Why were they not armed? I'm pretty sure the answer is because Canada. But seriously, I'm kidding. I don't know why they weren't armed. I guess they figured with the inmates secured to the gurney, it would probably be safer to travel without guns. At this point, Patty lost all lucidity. He was sick as a dog and he wasn't seeing or thinking straight. He was having hallucinations as he was riding in the ambulance. And when the ambulance arrived at the hospital, the paramedics saw a sign on the emergency room entrance that the area was under construction. Please use the side door. So the ambulance backed into a small driveway where there were two men wearing scrubs and surgical masks. Next to them was a van. One of the paramedics began telling the men in scrubs about the patient, his symptoms, etc., when he suddenly noticed that one of the two men brandished a revolver. It was Stephen. The other guy was a friend that he had recruited to help. 
Lionel had offered to come back up from Florida to help bust Patty out, but Stephen told him to sit tight to stay in Florida. Stephen told the two paramedics and the two guards to do what he says or he would blow their heads off. He demanded that one of the guards take the cuffs off of Patty, at which point he took the handcuffs and attached the two guards to the inside of the ambulance. Stephen picked Patty up in a fireman's carry and placed him inside the van. Patty was still completely out of it from all the nicotine that he had drank. Stephen drove the van over to a basement apartment he had someone else rent for him, still in the town of Kingston. He figured it would be safer to lay low close by, at least for now, while he nursed Patty back to health and then go from there. The basement apartment was stocked full of all the good stuff two fugitives could possibly want. All the best foods, whiskey, wine, as well as everything he needed to take care of Patty. And Stephen was worried. Patty was in a terrible way. He was teetering on the brink of unconsciousness. He couldn't speak, and drool was running down his chin. Stephen started to think Patty was going to die. He began coming up with another plan if that were to happen. He couldn't be trapped there in that apartment with Patty's dead body. He did have a hacksaw with him. He brought it so he could cut the leg irons off Patty. He started thinking if he did die... He might have to use the hacksaw to cut his friend up into pieces and take him out, little by little, in trash bags. And Stephen wasn't sure what he could do to help Patty, but he thought that he needed to do something. He couldn't just sit there and watch Patty suffer like this. Maybe if he got something into him to help dilute the nicotine or to counter it. He took one of his bottles of wine and began pouring some into Patty's mouth. He stepped back for a moment to watch and wait to see what would happen next. He could see Patty's heart pounding hard through his chest. Then suddenly, he began to convulse. He began hacking and choking, and suddenly Patty's body jolted straight up into a sitting position, and he projectile vomited a huge ball of black slime onto the ground. And just a few minutes later, Patty was okay. They spent the rest of the evening eating and drinking while they closely listened to their police scanners as they searched for Patty across Ontario. They reported across the airwaves that they believe he's caught up with his buddy who also became a fugitive a few months earlier. Of course, this was an embarrassment for the Canadian Penitentiary Services. Inquiring minds wanted to know, why did they think it would be a good idea to house these two guys together? Two guys that were known to have a long history of collaborating with one another in criminal activities. And one of them, Stephen Reed, was known to have escaped previously from a day pass, no less. All the spokesperson for the penitentiary could say was that they thought keeping them in one place would be easier. Stephen and Patty laid low for about a week. They did not leave the basement apartment at all, but it seemed as though at least some of the heat died down, so they decided to try to venture out. And you know, by this time, Stephen had all kinds of training when it came to styling hair, thanks to the Canadian justice system. So he put it to good use by giving Patty a new look. He dyed and permed his hair, and with that, they got themselves some fake IDs and left Ontario. They headed east to Montreal, Quebec. From there, they got on a train and crossed into the United States by way of Burlington, Vermont. And from there, they took a flight to New York City, and then they made their way south to the sunshine state of Florida. And they would meet up with their old friend, Lionel Wright, who had pretty much spent the last three years laying low still a fugitive from justice himself, still working the front desk as a clerk at the Shamrock Motel in Dundee. Stephen surmised that his friend Lionel would have been perfectly content doing what he was doing if he and Patty never showed back up. But they did. And they set themselves up at a house in St. Petersburg on the Tampa Bay side of Florida. Stephen and Lionel had already adjusted to being on the outside, but Patty, 
he needed a little bit more time getting used to everything. Not only was he free, he was in a completely different country with completely different surroundings in a completely different climate at their house on the beach. It took him about a month, and during that time, he spent it relaxing and fishing. In the meantime, Stephen and Lionel got busy committing some quick and easy bank robberies. They'd go in, take over the bank, jump the counters, grab the cash, and take off. Just in and out. Eventually, the gang of three got back to it. The first job that they were going to pull off was a robbery at Robinson's. Remember that department store? It was located in downtown Tampa. Patty was the one who liked to plan things out. He was kind of sort of the mastermind of it all. He visited the store several times and he had memorized its layout. He drew a sketch of the store and planned out how the job was going to be carried out. But Patty had actually left one thing out of his sketch. Himself. Stephen was like, okay, I see me, and here's Lionel, but where are you? Where are you going to be at? Patty had to come with the truth. This isn't a thing he's ever done before. He had never even held, much less fired a gun. But Stephen was like, oh no, I got you out. I brought you down to Florida. I let you decompress. Now it's time. All for one, one for all. Next, Stephen gave Patty some lessons on handling and shooting a gun. During the time that they were casing Robinson's, Stephen and Patty took note of where the cash office was on the second floor. They saw the store employees get the cash for the Brinks armored car pickup, which happened only once a week. The employees would get the money for the deposit and set it in a small office. When the cashier in charge of the deposit saw the Brinks guard arriving, she would get the deposit bags, he would give her a yellow deposit slip, and she would give him the money. That was the routine, week in and week out. Lionel shopped around at some local uniform shops, and he found some pants and a jacket. He was able to fix them up to resemble the uniform that the Brinks guys wore. When Stephen put it on, he looked just like one of those guards. So, he would make his way through the store and be able to gather up the money from the cashiers without anyone thinking twice about it. But the one thing he wouldn't have is the yellow deposit slip. So what Stephen was going to have to do at that point would be to brandish his weapon to get away with the money. Patty was going to mingle with the shoppers and be a lookout as soon as the ruse was up and he would pull his gun. Patty would be responsible for watching Stephen's back as he got out of the store with the money bags to make sure nobody was coming after him once he began his getaway. As they headed to the store for the job, they ran down the plan. As they went up the elevator, they ran down the plan again. Once they arrived on the second floor, they took their positions. Stephen walked up to the cashier, but he pulled out his gun before she handed over the bags. She did what he asked. She gave him the money. He described her at first as having a look of shock on her face. But out of nowhere, she suddenly became frantic and mad. Why she did this? I have no idea. But she began screaming at Stephen and she actually tried to take the bags back. And honestly, she's lucky her actions stunned Stephen more than anything else because he didn't react and he didn't shoot her. He just decided to book it. He quickly spun around and right before him, he was being stared at by a crowd of equally stunned shoppers along with Patty. Not sure what to do next, Patty had a gun in his waistband. And remember, this is the very first time he had ever had one in all the crimes that he'd ever committed. And when he went to try to take the gun out of his waistband, the trigger actually got hooked on the elastic of his underwear. So yeah, this is not really going as smoothly as it thought it was going to. They quickly made their way back to the elevator and Patty was freaking out. Steven slapped his hand as he was attempting to push every elevator button and told him to get back. He's got the gun. He's got the uniform. Just shut up and follow me. They hurried their way out of the store and to the car where Lionel was waiting for them. He could see right away that Patty was traumatized. 
They decided from then on, Patty would have to be the driver. He just didn't have the nerves needed to do this sort of stuff. After that, the trio turned to robbing banks rather than Brink's pickup trucks. They pretty much had it down to a science. They'd pick a place at least 30 minutes away from where they lived, and they'd rent a motel room. From there, they would start casing some of the nearby banks. Once they settled on one, Lionel would do the bulk of the planning. He drew up the possible escape routes. He would watch intersections and time the signal lights. He would look to see where traffic would get jammed up. He even took note of when garbage pickups happened just so he could plan around obstructions like that when it came to their getaway. While Lionel was busy planning the routes, the timing, and the escape, Stephen and Patty became bank customers. They opened up new accounts, they'd go in every other day to conduct a variety of transactions, and while they were doing so, they would make small talk with all the tellers. They'd take their time on every visit so they could become familiar with the routine inside the bank. They looked at the guards. Where would they usually be standing? What time did the manager take his lunch break? What time of day did they have the vault door open? They got themselves some safe deposit boxes so they could get a good look inside the vault as well. They would show up with a bunch of small bills and ask the tellers to exchange them for larger bills. And then they would watch where in the bank they would go to get those big bills. Once they were satisfied, they learned all they needed to know about the bank. They checked out of their motel and headed home. And then they would wait. What did they do that for? Well, they waited for the images to be cycled out of any recent surveillance footage that they may have been seen on. You know we've heard over and over, after a certain amount of days, footage gets taped over or deleted. They knew the FBI goes straight to their surveillance cameras following a robbery. Then, a couple of days before their planned heist, one of them would steal a car. Then they would look for a similar make and model of their stolen car and steal that car's license plates and switch them. Next, they'd rent an apartment, and they always look for one with underground parking. Then Lionel would be tasked with getting the supplies they would need to pull off the job, fake IDs, weapons, and disguises. Then they spent time driving around the area surrounding the bank and taking note of the side streets, alleys, and hidden exits and entrances to nearby shopping areas and businesses, anything that could give them any additional help in getting away. After the robbery and they got away in their car, Patty would take a route that they planned to get onto the closest freeway. Then they would get off quickly and make his way to a predetermined parking lot or an underground parking area where they would have stashed a second car. They would take the license plates off their stolen car they would take their clothes and disguises off, and all three of them would go in different directions. Patty would have a jogging outfit on under his disguise, and he would hit the streets as an unsuspecting jogger. And more often than not, he would actually jog back to the bank to watch the scene unfold. Stephen would get into the second car along with the loot and all the disguises and go back to their rented apartment. Lionel would casually leave the scene via bus. After some time robbing banks throughout Florida, things were getting a little bit too uncomfortable as law enforcement was bringing down the heat. So their next stop had to be another beach community. This time, their destination was beautiful San Diego, California. And this time, they decided to spread out a little bit more. They rented two apartments in one complex, as well as a third that would be their stash house of sorts a place where they would stockpile their weapons. And by this time, they were also using bulletproof vests as armored car employees were now very well armed. And California was considered to be a gold mine. Hundreds of miles up and down the western coast of the United States dotted with hundreds and hundreds of banks to choose from. And their gang had their eye on every single one of them from San Diego to the Bay. Even though they made it a rule of thumb to not do crimes in their own neighborhood, they just couldn't help themselves. Too many banks tempting them. In the span of seven weeks, they stole $21,270 from Wells Fargo, 
$24,661 from Solar Credit Union, $19,225 from First Bank, and $8,210 from Bank of America. And this is when it was first reported by witnesses that one of the bandits had a large stopwatch hanging from his neck, and he could be seen looking at it as the robbery was in progress. This is when they were dubbed the Stopwatch Gang by the FBI. Agent Norman Zagrosi was the head of the FBI's San Diego office at the time the Stopwatch Gang were pulling off their heist in his city. As a part of their strategy in investigating serial bank robberies committed by the same person or persons is to give each one nicknames, like they did with the Stopwatch Gang. It tends to garner more attention from the media and the public. They find something that stands out about the robbers and assign them a name based on that. The stopwatch gang was urgent on Agent Zergosi's to-do list. The FBI even ponied up a reward, which was not a thing they typically did at the time. Even though things were going well for the stopwatch gang, the anxiety started getting to Patty. They had pulled off so many robberies and the FBI were looking so hard for them. They had this bounty on their heads. It was just too much for him. He confided in Stephen and Lionel that he had to step away for a bit. After a series of heists they successfully pulled off in Northern California, the gang split up for a while. Patty headed to the Pacific Northwest where he began a relationship with the waitress that he met and he settled down in a remote cabin located near Mount St. Helen. Stephen and Lionel went towards the east. They traveled through the Sierra Nevada mountains, cut through the state of Nevada, and finally decided to settle down in Sedona, Arizona. And they really enjoyed living in Sedona. They rented a cabin in a quaint little area called Oak Creek Canyon. They got along well with their neighbors with the story they had spun. Stephen took on the alias Tim Pfeiffer, CEO of a concert lighting and equipment company, and Lionel became Stephen Kirkland, company logistics director. They were from California, which is where their company is based. They just love Sedona, so they choose to live there. But you know and I know that there is no such company. You know, they can't exactly tell people what they really do. And even though Patty had seen his way out for the time being, Stephen and Lionel continued robbing banks. They committed two robberies in Phoenix and one in Little Rock, Arkansas. If they needed help, they'd bring in an old friend to join in. All the while, constantly casing banks to hit for future heists. Patty didn't stay away forever, though. By 1980, he was ready to rejoin his old buddies. And with that, the stopwatch gang was back together again. And even though they were able to pull off all these bank robberies without a hitch, it wasn't lost on them that a lot of it had to do with luck. They didn't dilute themselves into thinking they could go on like this forever. Eventually, luck can and will run dry. They came to the conclusion that continuing at the pace they were, committing all these small-time heists, things were probably going to catch up with them. They decided they needed one big heist, one big take, where they could get away with enough money to carry them for a while so they could take time to figure out something a little more long-term. Still illegal, but long-term nonetheless. They thought about it, And what they came up with was to hit a bank branch that was big and busy on the weekends. They settled on a Bank of America back in San Diego. They had hit that particular branch previously, but since then, they relocated to a much busier location. The stopwatch gang made their way back to San Diego to do the pre-robbery casing and planning that had been an essential part of every job that they pulled off. They saw that the armored car company, Loomis, came every Tuesday to pick up the cash overflow from the weekend. And from the looks of the bags the Loomis guards picked up, it was a lot. They spent time watching the pickups. 
Using an alias with an Arizona ID, Lionel rented a car from the airport. He again fixed up the car again with stolen plates from a similar make and model car. They also dressed it up by putting a bright racing stripe down each side of the car. Another thing they made a habit of, they watched the news coverage of their robberies. They wanted to know what witnesses had to say about them, what they remembered, and intended to be things that stood out more. Obvious details, like, for example, the car had a bright yellow racing stripe. Not only did they dress up the car with conspicuous things witnesses would remember, they also decided to come up with conspicuous disguises as well. Stephen had this habit of leaving a bandana hanging out of his pocket, and it never failed. The news always reported on the bandana, every single time. And finally, it was go time. But dreamers, we are going to stop here so I can take some time getting the conclusion of this case together for you. Part two of the Stopwatch Gang will be available in a day or so following this. It depends apparently on Fred getting off his lazy butt and getting to work. So you all will have to be patient. Stay calm and I will let you know when I feel like giving you the second half of this bonus. Until then, sweet dreams.